Well, good morning, friends. Welcome back to those of you who may have been uh, traveling different places or seeing family and friends during the holiday season. For some of you, this might be your uh, first time to be back here in person since uh, before Christmas and New Year. So welcome back. If you're a guest or if you're new here, I want to make sure that I have a chance to meet you. So uh, each Sunday after services are over, my wife Aubrey and I are usually standing in the back. So make sure and come say hello to us before you leave. We would uh, love a chance to meet you. I just want to say how grateful I am uh, to be led to the throne of God and worship by our worship team. I'm so grateful for uh, what they do, for, for Jeff and his group. It's, um, it's a great experience to be wandering around here in the, in the moments and the hours before worship and just to, to hear them rehearsing. And it puts me in the right mindset uh, to be doing what I'm doing. And, uh, they, you know, they've had, a, like all of us, seasons of illness and people away and, and people struggling with health issues. And uh, it may be that our dear sister Linda is watching on the live stream or watching later. So we love you and we're praying for your recovery and uh, grateful for, for good care for those who are in need of it. Also want to say to Frank, uh, thank you for those thoughts. You may know this, but new ministers also struggle with imposter syndrome when are they going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing? <laughs> but you all have been so kind and gracious and encouraging and continue to be so. You're an easy group to love. And we are, our family's just so grateful to be here and we continue to enjoy uh, our times uh, together. So thank you for, uh, for encouraging us and for continuing to welcome us as we uh, begin our, our ministry here. But we're just, we're real thankful for these opportunities. Um, We're going to start a new series today, you can see on the screen, called Pure Religion. We're going to go through the book of James for this month and next. And what I have found about the book of James, and you may have found this too, it's quite easy to read, quite easy to understand what's required of us in the book of James. It's one of the hardest books for me to do, because I can see right there some things I'm being called to change, and sometimes they're tough. It's tough to read some of those things that uh, these inspired writers of Scripture call followers of Jesus to do. So we're going to spend these weeks looking through the book of James and seeing some very practical instructions and encouragements for those of us who are followers of Jesus. So I want to say a few words by introduction to the book of James, and many of you know these things, but just to set us in context... Uh, So we're going to start by reading the first verse of James 1 and set some background for what we're going to read in the rest of this book. So if you've got your Bibles or device or reading on the screen, just the first verse from the book of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So a few things we might say by way of introduction. First... The author is named James. Now, we don't know exactly who this is. Most scholars think this is the brother of Jesus who, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he went on to become a leader of the church in Jerusalem and mainly saw himself as a a leader and, and spokesman to Christians from a Jewish background. Now, we're not sure of that, but that makes best sense for who's writing this book. Um... So the the author is James. The second thing I want to say by way of introduction to this book is that uh, many people read James, and then they read some things that Paul wrote, and they see some contrasts that they're not sure 
uh, what to do with. In fact, uh, for people who are big fans of Paul, James seems like he's too much works-oriented. Martin Luther, for instance, called James an epistle of straw, which is not a, not a compliment. That's not the way we might insult a book, but that's what he said. And it comes when we read some verses side by side. So let me give you the starkest example from James and Paul. And then let me tell you why I don't think there's quite the contrast that others have thought. So think of um, this verse from James 2 where James says, You see that a person is justified by what they do and not faith alone. Okay, so justified, considered righteous, same word. Or Romans 3.28 We maintain that a person is considered righteous, justified, by faith apart from works of the law. Now that contrast seems pretty clear. Is Paul saying one thing and James saying another? The phrase to pay attention to in Paul is works of the law. And that's just not a generic way of saying good works. Paul has a specific meaning for that phrase, works of the law, And we get some clarity on this. There's some stuff we found, not we, like I did it, society found at the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, and there's there's a scroll called Some Works of the Law. And what you find with that phrase is it has to do with three particular things, really. Circumcision, the dietary and purity laws, and keeping the festivals and holy days. Those are works of the law. And they were the things that set Jews apart from the other societies, other cultures. And so it's, Paul is saying, basically, these things that used to mark off God's people don't anymore. The new marker is Jesus. Now, I just told you in about a minute a big academic debate that scholars have had for about 50 years. They call it the new perspective on Paul. Others would have a different view on what I just told you, but that's what I think. So in other words, James is not saying something different than Paul. Paul goes on in Romans to talk about taking a collection for the poor. So he's not opposed to Christianity working itself out through these kinds of works. He's opposed to those old ways of marking people off still being in effect. The third quick introductory thing I want to say is this word, religion. I think it's gotten a bad rap. Uh, You'll hear people talk about religion versus relationship and Religion just has to do with the practice of our faith. And it's not just the thing we do for an hour or so on Sunday, by the way, because James is going to tell us when he uses the phrase pure religion, what he says that means has little to do with an hour on Sunday morning. So James wants to say that pure religion has to do with 24-7 life, not just worship. But religion is a neutral term. It's not good or bad. It just has to do with how we work out our faith. And so we're going to spend some time reading through James and see what he says pure religion would look like. So let's get back into James. Let's see what wonderful, encouraging words he might have for us. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Okay. That's how we're going to start out some encouragement. Consider it joy when you deal with trials. Does this sound to some of you like the sappy stuff you might see on a greeting card or on social media posts, right? That's what it sounds like to me sometimes. Imagine getting this card in the mail or 
What, if, what about if you saw this graphic on somebody's feed? You know, oh, here's a runner. You know, it's perseverance. These kind of inspiring posts. It might even remind us of the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the fight in Monty Python where he lops the guy's arm off. You know, it's just a flesh wound. It's great. Everything's fine. You may remember the book that was later turned into a movie called Pollyanna. And in this book, in the movie, there's the main character, Pollyanna, and she has a difficult childhood, no doubt. And she is in the care, really, of a, a pretty authoritarian aunt. And many things uh, are difficult. She faces trials, and she begins to play this thing called the glad game. And in the glad game, you find something to be glad about in any circumstance. She even has an accident later on where she temporarily loses the use Uh, of her legs, and she plays the glad game there, which has led to the pejorative term Pollyannish. This is someone who's just naive, just look on the bright side of life. Is that what James is telling us here when he says, consider it pure joy? Is he just giving us some sort of sappy greeting card? Because we can play that game too if we want to use his words. So look at this graphic. I mean, I can, I can make them with the best of them. Here's somebody in the hospital hooked up to a lot of tubes. Consider it pure joy. Is that what we want to hear? Is that what James is saying? Just look on the bright side. I wonder if James might have something more to say to us than just a Hallmark card. So let's keep reading. Let's give him a little bit more of a chance to explain himself here. Keep reading in verse 3. He says to consider it pure joy because... You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Skip down to verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So James here gives a couple of sequences, things that happen when we're tested, when we have trials that come upon us in life. James wants to say that testing or trials leads to perseverance. And he then wants to say that perseverance leads to maturity and completion. If we step back, we agree with this formula. Doesn't make it easy, but we know it's true. We know it's true because we know what good stories contain. And we know that times of trial, hard times, produce better stories and better people. We just don't like it when it happens to us. But imagine stories. Imagine, you know, Frodo grabs the ring and easily, uh, uh, the next page, he goes and drops it in the fire with no obstacles. Or Kevin McAllister wakes up just on time, 
makes it on the van and takes the trip with his family. And there's no robbers coming to his house. We know that good stories contain trials because we like to see people endure them and, are, and we like to see them be better for it after it. We know that in the abstract. So is this just a theory of how life works best or does this work out in the real world? Can we attest to this? Well, I think if we look at Scripture, we can see that many of the authors of Scripture endured deep suffering. They were people who were oppressed, people who were prisoners, people who were exiles, people who were refugees, people who were persecuted. All kinds of things happened to the people who wrote the Bible. They went through trials. And then author Scott Sauls has made this list of the characters we love in Scripture. And I really love this as I was reading through one of his books. He reminds us that Job lost his possessions and livelihood and family in a single day. Moses stuttered and Jacob limped. Sarah dealt with infertility. David was betrayed by his family. Ruth was widowed young. Seems likely that Jeremiah and Elijah and maybe others battled depression. Gideon and Thomas doubted God. Moses, or Mary and Joseph had to flee a tyrannical regime. Mary and Martha were buried by their brother. John Mark was rejected by Paul. Peter hated himself. And Jesus wept. All these characters that we know and love in Scripture dealt with very difficult trials, didn't they? My favorite story of this comes in Genesis 39 with the story of Joseph. In the Joseph section of Genesis, which is the last 13 chapters or so, God is is talked about in a different way. Mainly, he's talked about much less. So you've got people before who are having dreams and visions and conversations with God. And you get to the Joseph story, and God's work is talked about much more in the background. But when God is talked about, it's significant. And so in Genesis 39, Joseph finds himself in prison for doing the right thing. And here's what Scripture tells us. Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. The thing we've got to hold on to, friends, is that trials do not mean that God is absent. I think we feel that a lot. And when trials happen, it's because God has abandoned me or or I've done something wrong. And so God is not present in my trials. But that's not true. It's just not true that when difficult things happen, God has left us to our own. A man named George Matheson began losing his eyesight in young adulthood. So because of this, his fiance called off their engagement He had a sister who began taking care of him. She began a family, and so she left him as his caregiver. And so like most of us would do, Matheson sank into despair. 
But at one point, he sat down and he began to write words to a song. He wrote these in a matter of minutes. And it's the song we know as, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And in the midst of deep suffering, Matheson wrote these words. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not in vain. This person who found himself with a disability that he probably didn't anticipate, found himself abandoned by those who he thought loved him, wrote the words, joy that seekest me through pain. That's exactly what James is writing about, isn't it? So maybe we can think about it this way. Trials, like James talks about, they're not always from God, but they can always lead us to God. I don't want to blame God for all the trials or assume he's at work engineering something because I don't think that's the case. But no matter the source, they can lead me to God. That's what Jesus does. Every time someone seems to ask him about why this thing happened, why did this man have this happen to him? Why did this tower fall on these people? Who's to blame? Jesus never answers, well, it's this person or that person. But Jesus says, I don't know why this happened, but this is a chance to turn to God. Grief expert Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote this. The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. And those of us who are Christians would say that God creates beautiful people. I found, by the way, that country music gets this concept. Before you get excited, country music fans, I'm not one of you. I'm not a huge country music fan. But I listen to it occasionally. And so there are songs where this message of trials that form me, they, they come through. It's Garth Brooks' Unanswered Prayers. Uh, it's Rascal Flatts' Broken Road. It's Randy Travis's Three Wooden Crosses. There's a lot of country songs that get this concept. So what do we do with this? So there's some practical takeaways. I want to give you a few for what we do with this abstract message of, well, God is with me during trials. Here are some next right steps we might take from the book of James. First thing, the right thing said at the wrong time is the wrong thing. Don't quote this verse to people who are in the middle of suffering. Probably a good way to get punched in the face. Most of us who are in the midst of suffering don't want to hear, you know, you should just consider this pure joy. We can say to them, I'm really sorry for what has happened to you. I've found that when someone is dealing with grief, any sentence I would say to them that begins with, well, at least it's not going to work. It's not helpful. No one wants to hear that when they're suffering. So we can believe this is true, but it's probably not the best interpersonal method to use 
when trying to comfort someone in grief, right? Nobody wants to hear this when they're in the middle of grief. Number two, don't blame God for your trials. Don't assume that this has happened to you because God doesn't like you, because you did something wrong, because God is evil. Scripture never claims that God is the source of all of our suffering. Does he do that sometimes? Yes. Am I an expert at knowing when that happens? No. So I don't go to somebody like Job's friends and say, you know, this might have happened because you messed up. Again, not helpful. So don't assume that when a trial happens, it's because God is purposely making you suffer. James doesn't think that. He just says, hey, no matter what the source is, you can turn to God. The final thing I want to say is that we've got to decide what we believe when we're at the peak, not in the pit. Don't wait until you're at the bottom when the trial is hitting you at the worst to decide whether or not you believe you should turn to God. That's not a good time to do it. It's too hard. When times are good, we have to decide, am I going to hang on to God when things get tough? Am I going to be grateful for the kind of person that I'm becoming? Or am I going to give it all up when things get tough? But if you wait until things are at their worst, that's really hard to make the right kinds of decisions. That's just how we're wired. So I want you to know, friends, your trials are not always from God. But James would say that your trials can lead you to God. When we lean into them that way, we become the kind of people that God can turn into mature people through the perseverance of getting through those tough times. And when we're in the tough times, may we lean on each other because it's too hard to do that alone. Let's stand and sing.